we have to we have to talk into this thing. Will it pick up from this distance? Okay. If we were to stand, would it still pick up? Okay. Yeah, I hate microphones. <laughs> I know. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. Did she hear that? Yes. <laughs> Did everybody hear that? No, no. She is just. Don't make me crack up. Okay, it's 1.30, we have a lot to talk about, so we're going to start now. How's everybody doing? Oh, come on. How's everybody doing? Okay, there we go. I know it's just after lunch. We'll try really hard not to put you to sleep. We know that this is the deadly hour. So, um, welcome to this session. My name is Mark Blackburn. This is Brett Labello. We were supposed to have a third uh, member of our uh, panel, but because of professional obligations, he's not able to make it. He did send us our PowerPoint, and I know it's tedious when you read notes from PowerPoint, so I'm just going to apologize now. We're going to make his uh, presentation as uh, exciting as we possibly can. Um, I am, well, I think that in a way this um, session started almost two years ago. Brett and Eric and I are graduates of the class of 2019 for the seminar in historical administration. And I can see some of my classmates are here in the room to cheer us on. Um, uh, we all have uh, an in, in a professional and, uh, mm, I, well, more than professional interests in, in military history. Uh, I work for the National Park Service. Right now, my duty station is at Mount Rainier National Park in western Washington. I transitioned there in April. But prior to that, I worked for thir 13 years at Nez Perce National Historical Park, a unique national park unit that, as the title indicates, it talks about the Nez Perce Indians. Um, Brett here is now the deputy director of Bruce Moore, a historic property in Des Moines, Iowa. But uh, in 2013, when we first started talking about this, he was a curator of education at the Kenosha Civil War Museum. And Eric Leonard, who can't be with us today, was the chief of interpretation at Andersonville, the Civil War prison. Uh, and he is now superintendent of Minuteman Missile National Historical Site, the only National Park Service site that currently is dedicated to telling the story of the Cold War. So all three of us, uh, professionally and in other ways, uh, have worked with or dabbled in military history. Um, for me, I have a PhD in American military history from Temple University. Russell Wigley, for those of you who are into the field, was my mentor and my guide. So for me, when I was about 12 years old, wandering through the children's library in my hometown of Palo Alto, California, some of you may remember those uh, American Heritage history volumes with the cool pictures. Well, I found those. I looked at them and thought, this is kind of cool, and have never looked back. So from the time that I was about 12 or 13, there was a voice inside me that said, you know, you're going to do something with military history. And so 
Uh, it's been a long journey, and it's something that I'm, I'm distinctly proud of. And I've come to appreciate that military history is maligned in the academic world. It is a field that is seen as traditional, and if you keep track of journal literature, some will even say it's on a decline. But all you need to do is look at the newspaper and see that military history is more relevant than ever. The field itself, without going into a great amount of detail, has morphed from just uh, blue arrows and red arrows into something much more expansive. You can look at um, topics that morph with cultural history, environmental history, social history. We've gone beyond just what's called drums and trumpets into something that's much more expansive. So military history is capital R relevant. It can be used to not only explain the events of the past, but more importantly, and what we hope to show in our various uh, presentations, is that it gets down to the human condition. It gets down to people's stories. In interpretation, it gets down to universal messages about life, about death, about survival, about nation states, about economics, about capitalism, about all the isms that you can think of. So what we're going to do today is use three case studies that will talk about how we have explored these topics and tried to refocus our institution's attention on something much more than who did what and when. So we're going to start with Brett talking about his experiences at the Kenosha Civil War Museum. I'm going to focus on a case study of exhibit replacement at Big Hole National Battlefield, and Eric, through his disembodied voice, will talk about his experiences at Andersonville and now Minuteman Missile. And hopefully we can have enough time for dialogue and questions because I, I could be here the rest of the afternoon just jawboning with you, but we have a schedule to keep. So we will start with Brett. Okay, gang. Um, I love how Mark just sort of started this with a personal story. Uh, he told us how he got involved in military history with the American heritage is back in Palo Alto. Um, I was planning on doing the same thing, which is awesome because we didn't coordinate that part of this. Oh. Um, and I remember back in eighth grade, um, sitting in one of my favorite classes, social studies, we did a whole two weeks on the Civil War. And uh, my teacher, Mr. Timko, got up and went across that chalkboard, this chalkboard, and then that chalkboard, drawing out diagrams just like this fish hooks, arrows, all sorts of really cool things. I remember sitting in my seat going, this is the coolest class ever. <laughs> and then I remember looking around and seeing people like this, and people like this, and people looking out the window and realizing nobody else thinks it's that cool. What's the matter with this? And that's one of the things that's lasted with me throughout my career, uh, one of the big driving forces that I got into museum education and museums in general. Um, so that's sort of where we, where we start. Um, to give you a little bit of background, um, I'm the I was the curator of education at the Civil War Museum in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, it opened up in 2008, and we're constantly asked, why is there a Civil War Museum in Kenosha, Wisconsin? Well, the very simple reason is because 750,000 soldiers from our upper Midwestern area went and served during the war. 
And we look at those folks as not just numbers, but as real people. And that's what we try and tell that story. Um, so we chose to tell the story of those individuals. Now, the next thing that, we, that people sort of ask is, well, you're telling it in a different way than we anticipated. And that's perfect. You know, we don't try and tell it in that traditional approach. You're not going to see a battle map that you saw in that first slide in our museum. You know, don't even hear much about battles. Um, Antietam, Gettysburg, Shiloh, you don't see any of that stuff. Um, what we really tried to focus on was the idea that the Civil War folks, the enthusiasts that are out there, they're going to come to see us anyway because we're called a Civil War Museum and they're excited about the Civil War. So they came, they're our base. Uh, but we also realized as a city-operated uh, museum, we needed our city, our local community, to, to feel like this was part of their uh, history too. So we wanted to approach it a little bit differently. Um, and the other thing that we really wanted to do was to cultivate a, a Civil War audience up in the Upper Middle West. Um, people didn't look at it as their history when we obviously felt like it had, it had so much to do with the history of the Upper Midwest. Um, the other reason we didn't go down that traditional approach is very simple. We didn't have a collection. We couldn't do the racks of guns. We couldn't have multiple hundreds of hats and all those really cool <laughs> things. Um, so we had no other choice. Um, we, went, we went down a sustainable route to sort of try and keep this thing in operation and not just go down a pitfall of, it's really cool for two weeks and during the, or during the sesquicentennial, and then people aren't going to come back anymore. So our main exhibit is called the Fiery Trial. It's a 15,000 square foot exhibit, um, and that was opened up in 2008. Um, as you can see here, what we tried to do is we tried to pair, uh, show some people stories. We started off in 1850 when the, when the people, when they were civilians, you know, that they had not even enlisted. Um, and we go all the way up to 1890. So we're tracking that journey all the way back until they're veterans and they're back in their communities. Um, like I said, we don't talk about battles. We talk about that experience that they really uh, participated in while they were at war. Um, we talked about things like what are they doing in their spare time, the boredom, the tedious stuff. Um, we talked about how are they getting food. Uh, we talked about the excitement at the beginning of the war when everybody was, woohoo, it's time to go to war. This is going to be the best thing ever. Um, and then they realized that, that, that it wasn't necessarily the case. Um, so what we're trying to do is to really focus on that experience and not the necessarily the traditional battles. We also opened up with the Veterans Gallery. Um, in that Veterans Gallery, we have uh, statues from, of American soldiers from all American wars. Um, they're all underneath a starlit sky with a campfire in the middle, and they're all sharing a cup of coffee. Um, that gallery was meant as a memorial, but what we found is as people were sort of processing it, they were looking at those people, the, those statues that were holding that cup of co coffee, and they were sort of imagining what those people were talking about. Um, what's the, the conversation going between a person that's flying a helicopter in Vietnam and a soldier from 1812? So they were drawing these parallels. Uh, we weren't even prompting them to do that, and it, it, we found that people were having a very emotional response in that area. And so that was our second sort of thing that was like, oh, people stories, emotional responses, we're on to something here. So then we tried this, a theater program. Uh, this theater program was funded by the a grant from the Wisconsin Humanities Council. Um, and we employed professional actors to go into schools, to go uh, to work at the museum, um, and to tell those personal stories based on real historical people. Um, so we were starting to get into themes with these characters like loneliness, purpose, sacrifice, courage, justice, perseverance, 
Um, so we were really starting to hit on these big concepts um, and not just, like I said, where we weren't going down the road of specific battles, but trying to put it into a global or more uh, holistic uh, viewpoint. Um, and the beautiful thing about this is that even the eighth graders, that when I was in the eighth grade, I looked around and saw everybody sleeping, even the eighth graders liked this. So that made me, that sort of validated my job, or at least my self-worth, I guess. <laughs> Thanks for the chuckle. <laughs> okay. So our concept had always been in the center of our gallery where it's blue shaded, we were going to put a uh, battle scene. Uh, you know, I just talked about how we weren't doing battles, we weren't doing traditional history, but guess what? We were going to do it at some point. Um, the whole idea was to do a uh, 360 degree movie that was paying homage to uh, the, the cycloramas that were, that were painted right after the Civil War. Uh, so we built in this viewing platform. We had an 11 foot tall uh, screen throughout the whole thing. All the infrastructure was in place, but the funding didn't come through. It was supposed to be a $5 million project, and in 2008, you guys can all guess that we didn't have $5 million. We barely had anything. We opened a museum, so we didn't have this part. Um, <laughs> but the whole idea was, at that point, was to basically put a 360-degree camera right on top of a fence post and have a battle around it. So you were going to feel as if you are in the middle of it, but it was just going to be, oh, wow, this is crazy. You know, it, it didn't have that connection yet. Um, but building off of those previous projects that we had sort of put together over the last couple of years, we decided that the movie wouldn't be that simple. What we were going to do is to try and uh, delve into some uh, universal and emotional responses. Uh, the excitement of the enlistment, uh, the boredom and the loneliness of going off away from home, uh, the nervousness and unease of not knowing when they were going to see combat, uh, and then finally, uh, fraternity, the building of connections between one another. And then finally, the ultimate realization of that combat and what that really meant to them. Okay, so that was sort of our big concept, and sort of a breakthrough. Um, and that was our breakthrough, is sort of that idea that that pivot point, that emotional pivot point, was when they actually did see combat. Okay? So all that other stuff was when they were, they were training to see this, and then you can't go back from combat once you see that. You can't go back. So that's where we had, we had just sort of found our emotional point where we were going to dive into and really trying to connect with the visitors that way. Um, at this point, that's where we went away from that idea of just setting a camera on a fence post and went to more of a, a holistic idea that we're going to still use the 360 degrees, but we were gonna, what we were going to do was intersplice vignettes, those personal stories, into that 360-degree field. There are still 14 parts where it is a full 360-degree experience, um, but there is, out of the 10-minute long movie, there are parts where we, are, we have spliced in, like I said, uh, those vignettes. And you'll see those in a second. Okay, so what we had done, we basically loosely storyboarded our idea, um, and at that point, I'm a museum educator and not a 360-degree movie guy, <laughs> so it was time to get in the experts. And we actually contracted with a, a great group out of Boston called Boston Production Incorporated, Incorporated a BPI, um, and they were fantastic. Uh, what we basically, how we did it was we divided the labor up into, they were the visual storytellers. Uh, they collaborated with us when we developed that script, but with an eye on the drama and how they were going to actually put it together. They filmed it, they edited it, they created the music, and they developed all the technology that would need to go into our gal galleries. We were the content experts, and I was a part of that work team. 
we mined our letters collection and our photograph collection to support what they were doing. We also cast the actors and the reenactors that do show up in our, in our film. Okay. As you can see, when you look at our goals, our overall goals, they're all very emotional and visitor-centric. So we were really trying to pull people in here. And we decided that we needed some great storytellers. So here are the, the three storytellers that we, want, we sort of used to connect with the audience. The first guy up here at the top is a married man with children, and he's basically motivated because of patriotic duty to go to the war. Uh, underneath him is a single man in his 20s, um, his motivation was more religious. He was an abolitionist, but more from a religious standpoint. And the third fellow over there um, is a young son, and he's motivated for glory and to put down the rebellion. Okay, so he really thinks this is going to be really fun. Uh, two of these three characters were actually based very loosely off of Wisconsin soldiers. Um, the other one, the, the composite character uh, that came from our uh, letters, is that abolitionist. He wasn't based on anybody specifically. Um, and when I say loosely based, we didn't want to recreate a Wisconsin soldier um, because we have those six states. We represent six states. We didn't want this to be looked at as, well, this is just the story from Wisconsin. Uh, we wanted people to be able to connect from all those six states. Uh, we also had a narrator that uh, sort of smoothed out all the edges throughout this whole uh, movie, um, and that was Bill Curtis from Anchorman fame. Gosh, you guys are the, he's my only audience, man, that one flopped. Okay, um, we anticipated that visitors would identify with the ordinary people, you know, so what we tried to do is, is to show them who they are right off the bat, the civilians are the, those ordinary people. Um, so we wanted to show them, and we connected them right there with that civilian experience and how they transformed from being civilians into the soldiers. We also wanted those, the students that came to be able to connect as well. So we made sure that there were children in there. Uh, those children are doing things like you know playing um, in the background, playing in the foreground, saying goodbye to brothers and to uh, uh, brothers and fathers. So that that part is in there. Everyone, if you went to uh, this and watch this, you would be able to find your story in here. So we are very subtly showing a civilian um, story in a what was perceived to be a military movie. Um, we also developed an emotional arc, and I have to sort of, sort of preface this with: I put this together the other day on my, you know, draw thing, and it's not to scale at all. Um, but this is, this is sort of how it, how it works. And I'll walk you guys sort of through this, but then we're going to drill down a little bit deeper. Um, but what we really wanted to do was to create that emotional connection with um, the audience through a couple of these techniques. Um, and those techniques could have been the level of the camera and how it was moving, uh, the score, the musical uh, background, which is obviously a really hu huge part of it, uh, the volume level, we have 11 speakers placed throughout the whole thing, so it could either be really high or pushed off to one side. Uh, we were using volume lights to sort of direct people to where to look. Uh, remember, this is a 360-degree movie, so it's everywhere around you. Um, so we used to, to get people to look where you sort of anticipate them to. We had to use some of these tricks. Um, like I said, lighting effects on the viewing platform. Um, so there were actually lights that were projecting straight down on the audience. Um, the editing that BPI did, uh, there were places where they were really choppy, 
um, to give that sort of a chaotic idea. Um, and then the narrator and the storyteller's voice inflections really helped out um, creating some of those emotions. Okay, like I said, I'm going to walk you guys through this. Um, I apologize that I couldn't have this session in Kenosha so you could all experience the 360 degrees. Um, not just not feasible, um, but even more so, I apologize that I didn't uh, bring any video clips because you really can't get that experience. So these are all stills that I took one day, and I've watched this thing probably 400 times, and it's still you know, hard to get exactly that right picture. Um, so... Uh, basically, here at the very beginning here, uh, what we see is the introductions, okay? Uh, we have the abolitionist being introduced to people. We didn't want him just to be a talking head. Uh, we also wanted him to be put into his own context. So you see it off to the right, he's actually in, a, in the church, singing in the church. So you don't just get that this is why I'm going to war, but this is why I'm going to war, and this is where I'm coming from. So we're making that connection right there. Um, the sort of the second part right there is when all of these soldiers, they've been listed. They're excited. You could sort of see in the background, um, those are people cheering them on, giving them that, that, that hearty uh, slap on the back to, you know, go get them, guys. Um, at this point, the music is swelling. It's feeling great. I'm excited. I'm excited watching it after 300 times. You know, I'm going to war. This is going to be some fabulous stuff. Um, and then the next one right there is when it sort of drops. The emotional level drops because they're sitting there um, around a campfire once again, um, and they're waiting for war. You know, they're darning their socks. They're talking about the drill that they had to do. They're um, writing letters home. They're waiting to do something. Uh, a quote that we pulled out and, and used in the movie is one of the soldiers goes, this damned war will be over before we even have a chance to do anything. So you sort of see they're emotionally coming back down. Um, in this section here, I remember very vividly when I saw some of the roughs, I was like, this is so long and boring. You know, we go from this high element to this, we're going to lose the audience at this point. And I felt like it was a five-minute long section. Guess how long it was? A minute and ten seconds. But that's the emotional connection that the editing process really gave it. It felt so boring. I was, I was going on the same journey as these guys were. Okay, at this point, we see the elephant, and that's where the emotional story goes through the roof again. Um, what's actually occurring in that top scene, this is the, the second time that we go full 360, um, is those soldiers are coming across the field, uh, they're fired upon, and then they charge through a fence, and 200 soldiers come right across where you're standing. Uh, they charge through that fence, put out their skirmish lines, you feel cannon fire. Um, we have everything on that viewing platform, so you're about five, six feet off the ground. Underneath it, we've got base kickers, um, so you can sort of feel when the cannons are, are, are being fired. You, we have an air cannon as well that, in reality, sounds awesome, uh, but it doesn't work half the time. <laughs> but it would have been really cool if you could feel that cannon fire. So you're, you're once again, we're, we're getting you into the battle here. Um, one of the parts that I really like is the young man who said that he was so excited about going to war. This is probably the highlight of my, of my uh, experience here. And the reason I like it so much is because I connect with him. I wasn't a veteran, so this really connects with me. Is he's excited to go to war. Um, the guy right next to him gets shot, goes down. Everything turns into black and white except for the one soldier. He looks up, and he's, you know, he's wondering, 
Um, he says, am I a coward? Should I run? Dear God, please help make me strong. Um, and at that moment, you, you, the, the storytelling, is, everything's in black and white except for him. Um, there's parts where you almost get that feeling that the life is flashing before his face, and then boom, everything goes back to color, and he charges through you, and they come out the other side. Well, you guys get the picture. It's 360. Um, but the whole idea here at this point also is that it's chaotic. We've gone from that idea of it's an easy, easy flow to manage to shots over here, boom over here. You, you, you're, you're bouncing back and forth. You don't know where to look. Um, they're charging this way. Then all of a sudden they're charging back at you. Um, no one can actually really place it what's really occurring here. And what we're trying to do is show that chaos, that fog of war of what's happening. It's hard to place what's exactly happening. It's even so much that I've, like I said, watched it 300 times. I tried to take a good battle image for that bottom right one and missed it completely. It already moved. So that's how sort of chaotic it really is. Okay. And then after that, the, the, the small skirmish has ended. Um, what we wanted to do is we wanted to get, provide a broad context. So everything that's starting to peak can come back down. Uh, we placed it into the idea of all these soldiers are coming from the upper Midwest. Uh, the narrator uh, provides a recap. Western regiments served in every theater of the war, suffering exceptionally high casualty rates from the battle and disease. At that time, you're seeing pictures uh, of those guys, not reenactors flashing across the whole field. Um, and then we get into more of the realization in the aftermath, um, where they're doing a burial party, 360, all around us, where you're seeing them burying soldiers. There's the audio trips that are, or the audio is saying things to the effect of, I, it, you wouldn't understand what it's like to find your, your, your best friend that, that dead. Um, the image in the, very in, in the very top is actually one of the, is one of the coolest images that I think is there because no one sees it. Everybody's faced typically to the front of the circle gallery, and that one happens right in the back, and you don't see this chaplain holding a soldier's hand as he's dying. Uh, it's really an emotional part for me. Um, and then you see that one soldier at the bottom there that uh, was so excited to go to war, and he's in the hospital, he's been shot, and he says that he wishes he never sees that damn elephant again. So it really connects. Um, you see his journey as well. Um, this is about a 20-second, uh, not even that, probably about 10-second vignette that I want to drill down a little bit into. Um, this is that family man and his death. Um, he's been shot. You see the, the woman actually rushes off the porch, his, his wife, goes through the casualty list, finds his name, and starts to cry. And you can sort of see also those, those flashbacks that I sort of highlighted, the her saying goodbye to him in the top, and also concurrently um, saying goodbye to his children. So it's really trying to, to really stress those emotional connections of, this is stuff that happens to, that could still happen today, those, those final goodbyes, that type of thing. So we're really trying to, to push on people to really make those connections there. And finally, we get to when they're returning home. Uh, this top scene here is, uh, the abolitionist coming back to that same church that he left. Um, he has a very different demeanor. Um, when you look off to the right, you can sort of see there's widows standing there wearing the widow's weed. So, so, so once again, we're still trying to incorporate 
maybe subtly, that civilian experience. Uh, to the bottom there, that's the soldier that was so excited to go to war, now he's hobbling back to meet his friends who had so eagerly wished him well when he left, um, and you see that his wound is going to linger with him the rest of his life. At the same time, we're also throwing different more pictures up, uh, military uh, veterans, uh, organizations, JR uh, images up as well. And the movie ends with a ghost charge across that same field that they've fought over, um, where they're charging it. It sort of represents not, it sort of represents how they are um, fading into the nation's memory. So we've gone all the way from 1860 at that height and peak to where it's almost starting to go away in our nation's history there. So, the movie. I threw a bunch of numbers up here, and you can sort of see that. Okay, thank you. Um, it was a complex project, um, and you, uh, I threw up another picture of our 360-degree camera over on the right. Um, that sort of shows you that it's, there's really not an offstage. You know, the directors had to actually be underneath it to, to direct. Um, Okay, and here's some of the outcomes. I wanted to talk a little bit about, which ones did I want to talk about? Um, some of the things that we would have changed. Um, two things that we would have changed. Um, evaluation has been very difficult for us at this, for this movie. Um, it connects with people. We know it connects emotionally with them, um, but we never defined how we would measure an emotional connection or even defined what an emotional connection is. Um, so if you're down there with an educator or a tour guide or the curator walks through, you see emotion, but we don't know how to quantify that. Um, so it's successful, but we can't figure that part out. Um, the other part is that um, since, the movie, since the movie opened five years after we actually opened the museum, we had figured out how the, the, the museum was going to operate. Um, but we didn't understand how the, the movie would impact our operations. Um, basically, it runs at the top of every hour, and it's a 10-minute-long movie, so for 10 minutes, that whole gallery that's awesome is shaking, and people, it almost rushes people through. Oh, we gotta go see the movie. Then they get to that point, then, eh, well, we'll go here instead of go back to where you were at. So there's some operational issues that, we're still, that we were still working on uh, cleaning up. Um, to sort of wrap everything up, um, what I'd like to sort of reinforce is that the storytelling technique that we really used here uh, was using emotion to sort of connect with our, our contemporary audience. Um, and I want to reinforce this. This, is, this movie, when I said it cost $5 million in uh, 2008, it's only a million dollars to do it nowadays, but you don't need a million dollars to do, to connect with people on an emotional level. Um, you can do this through, like I said, exhibits, uh, interpretive programs, interpretive tours. Um, so while I talked about a movie, um, there's multiple ways to connect emotionally with an audience. Okay. Thanks. Yours. We hate sitting, so. 
So this is going to focus on uh, my time at Nez Perce National Historical Park and specifically at Big Hole National Battlefield. Um, Nez Perce National Historical Park is a non-traditional national, uh, non-traditional national park site. We have 38 sites in four states, north central Idaho, eastern Washington, north central, northeastern Oregon, and western Montana. It's one of the only national park units that was established to tell the story of a people. It encompasses about 11,000 years of history and development. And in terms of distance, the furthest eastern side is Bear Paw Battlefield. Um, my office is at park headquarters right here. To drive there and back again with a couple detours is about 2,000 miles. So it's at about, or excuse me, to see all the sites from the furthest west to the furthest east and go back again is about a 2,000 mile trip, which I took several times. Um, some of the sites, three of them, are in western Montana, and those sites are all associated with the Nez Perce War of 1877. The most iconic site is Big Hole National Battlefield. It was a site that in August of 1877, Colonel Nelson, not Nelson Miles, uh, names, the name just escaped me, uh, attacked a Nez Perce village, uh, which is commemorated by a ghost village that you see on the right. The Nez Perce repulsed the charge and encircled the soldiers in what we call the siege area, of which a monument was uh, put up in the 1890s. The battlefield is small and compact. It is not, and excuse the term, littered with monuments as in a Civil War battlefield. So the topography and the feeling and the location is very much what it would have been in August of 1877. It's in a very isolated area, about 100 miles south of uh, of uh, Missoula, Montana, and it's at about 6,800 feet. So the temperatures during the winter can get to 40 degrees below zero. Um, Big Hole is sometimes the coldest place in the lower 48. And having experienced it, all I can say it's awesome. Um, <laughs> the process is what I want to talk about because the, the park and its tribal partners made a critical decision when we got money to replace our exhibit. And that critical decision was to turn over the responsibility of telling this story, not to the National Park Service, but to our tribal partners. And this would then become an exhibit with an authentic and genuine Nez Perce voice, rather than the voice of the National Park Service. And the gentleman um, that you see with his arms crossed, he is an elder from Nespelum, Washington, and he challenged us. Uh, he said, are you ready to tell the truth? Because that's what we want to hear. And we looked at him and said, yes, we are. But the process took um, well over a year. We met our tribal partners, and there are three, not only the Nez Perce tribe of Idaho, but also two other federally recognized tribes that have Nez Perce descendants at uh, the Colville Reservation, which is where Joseph and his uh, band was exiled to after 1877, and his descendants still live there, and on the Umatilla Reservation in Oregon, where there are many Nez Perce descendants. All three came together to provide us guidance in many different meetings on how to appropriately tell this story. Um, but we were also given a gift. 
those of you familiar with National Park Service architecture, uh, it is not a missile silo. It is a teepee. Uh, this is a Mission 66 Visitor Center. It is inadequate, it's ugly, it has aluminum siding on it, it just is not a pleasant building. But when we were awarded the, the, the money for the exhibit contract, they also were awarded money to completely renovate the building. So we were able to work with a blank canvas as we reconceptualize this exhibit. Now the old exhibit was basically objects with no context. They were stuff inside plexiglass cabinets with no labels and they looked kind of pretty, but without a ranger in the room, they were meaningless. They imparted no meaning except cool, look at the rifle, look at the dress, and you would move on. We had misused space. The, the, the best room in the house was where we had the theater, and it was the only room in this visitor center that offered a protected view of the battlefield when it was 40 degrees below zero. And we had curtains over it and showed our movie. So we made decisions based on what we wanted to do to reuse the space in a much more uh, rational point of view. We put in an airlock. Previous to that airlock, when the doors opened, when it was 40 degrees below outside, the air rushed in. And if you've ever been in 40 degrees below zero, it's really cold. And it became very expensive to heat the building. The iconic room with the view became the centerpiece of the exhibit. And then the room that had the objects was painted black and it became our theater. So we had now from this to a much more inviting lobby with exhibits that drew you into the story immediately. The, one of the pride and joys of the exhibit was for the first time we were able to include a map of the entire route of the 1877 war. Mm -hmm. um, there, it, the, the, the trail of 1877 is a national historical trail, but it's run by the United States Forest Service, and there is no visitor center along the 1,100-mile corridor. So Big Hole, in many respects, has become the visitor center, and we needed to have a map that is completely accessible. It is tactile. The panel that's highlighted can be popped out, and it's the braille of the entire text of the map. And it, it was our pride and joy. But the critical thing is we use the Nez Perce voice. All of the exhibit labels uh, are not only in English, but in Nimi Putimt, the Nez Perce language. And then the audio stations offer um, testimonies by direct descendants of 1877, as well as uh, historical reenactments of soldiers and Nez Perce alike. We had hundreds of hours of tape, and we had to be very selective in what we could use. But each, uh, each uh, element probably is 10 to, f oh, maybe 10 to 12 minutes of, of audio material if you sit through the entire thing. The difficult thing was, is you've, if you've ever had uh, three Nez Perce in the room, they disagree about everything. So one of the challenges was that we decided to use Nez Perce language, but even the Nez Perce name of Big Hole was contested. 
So this was by no means an easy process. The objects that we had were put in a better context in the theater. They don't light up when the film is going on, but they were labeled. And the film is a 30-minute film that is probably one of the most emotional National Park Service films you'll ever see. Uh, The staff has become accustomed to people not moving when the film is over or coming out in tears and uh, uh, either uh, so emotionally uh, uh, consumed by the story that they need help to, to reconnect with the world and then a tiny percentage who are just pissed off that uh, we dared tell the story from a different point of view. We've been talking about relevance in this organization as well as the National Park Service for years. Uh, the relevance of this story is that it, it's not only an Esper's voice, it brings it up into the present. One of the things that is remarkable about working at a place like Nez Perce is that our conception of history is different because what happened in 1877 is not 135 years ago, it's yesterday. Because if you talk to a Nez Perce elder who's about 65 or 70, it's quite possible their grandparents fought in 1877. That's less than one generation. So when you go on the battlefield in the company of Nez Perce, it is an experience that requires no explanation. This is a place where when you close your eyes and listen to the wind, you can almost hear the villagers screaming in terror of what's happening in August of 1877. And there's many Nez Perce who say they hear that every time they visit. So the exhibit is an attempt to connect the visitors to a genuine story that's relevant to tribal people today and by implication, as Brett explained with the scene, the elephant, that's relevant to our lives because of the subject that it talks about. The exhibits that talk about the battlefield, lo and behold, they're now against the windows. So when you look outside, you can follow along and see what's happening without exposing yourself again to 40 degrees below zero temperatures in the wintertime. The battlefield is open every day of the year except Christmas, New Year's, Thanksgiving. And when you're there in the winter, you shovel a lot of snow. The exhibit that I like the most is giving opportunities for visitors to voice their own voices. It is a place you can write a note. The staff reviews them and hangs them on a clipboard. Um, There's always uh, uh, genuine concern about a government entity censoring people's comments. The staff will remove comments that use obscenities or are so over the top with racist comments they don't deserve to be shared. Those are the only criteria that we have. And you can see uh, that the staff has the courage to share visitors' uh, appreciation. I'll just let you read it for a moment. Mm -hmm. 
And what's so interesting about this exhibit, and I know you see this more frequently in history exhibits, is that it started a dialogue because one of the visitors answered that. Facebook on a clipboard. Everybody with me? The success of this was that for the first time in creating interpretive media, and we just saw, uh, the park just celebrated its 50th anniversary, we engaged our tribal partners from the very beginning of this project. Not scoping, but pre-scoping. Yes, I know to tell the truth is very subjective. And we can spend the rest of this session talking about what's the truth. But we were challenged to tell the truth, and I think that we met that challenge. The process was completely inclusive and transparent, and uh, we worked very hard to always have uh, an open line of communication between ourselves, our tribal governments, because we have a government-to-government -government relationship, as well as those people who are delegated to work with, the, with us on that exhibit. But the issue was that because tribal uh, participation was sometimes delegated to other people, it was a revolving door. So sometimes we had to start all over again because we had a new person sitting at the table. And uh, it was difficult at times to get consensus because we had another voice that we had to listen to. And I will be honest, we didn't have all the stakeholders at the table. We should have included the ancestors of the soldiers who died there. And I know that the staff would disagree with me by saying that, but I'm going to. And I think that we would have had a richer and perhaps a more understanding voice of the exhibit if we, if we had included that. Um, and most importantly, most of you probably contract for your exhibit design and fabrication. If any of you work, I know some of you work for Uncle Sam, and you know that contracting Uncle Sam are two words that it's a, it's a nightmare of a bureaucracy. But you can select the right contractor. And we worked very hard to find a person and, that would listen, that wouldn't use their artistic sensibilities and tell their own story, but they tell the story that we hired them to hire. And so we were extremely lucky. And those of you who've had the, the pleasure of working with tribal folks, you have to be very patient. Because for them to understand your point of view excuse me, for them to express their point of view on an exhibit, they have to start with, this is who I am, this is my journey to where I am now, and this is how it affects your exhibit. So we had very long meetings, and that's why they lasted, uh, we had six or eight of them, because of our tribal, um, our, our, our tribal participants. And I think the best way to put a bow on the exhibit is the comment that we have here.
and we'll hopefully have time for questions. I could go on and on with us for the rest of the evening, but um, we'll now switch to our disembodied member. Oh, thank you. Eric was the chief of interpretation for Andersonville um, for uh, several years. Um, he's very glad to have moved from Amicus, Georgia to South Dakota, um, believe it or not. Uh, and he is a marvelous person and a free thinker, and he did marvels at Andersonville. So Andersonville was one of the deadliest military prisons of the Civil War. In 14 months of operation, uh, 45,000 Union prisoners were held there, and 13,000 died in those 14 months of operation. Uh, in the 1890s, survivors worked to preserve the site, and from 1896 to 1910, uh, the U.S. Army afterward would manage the site. And Memorial Day services at Andersonville were exclusively African American for almost a generation after the war ended. Uh, following the centennial of the Civil War, the site was established by Congress as a National Historic Site in 1970. And it's at a time, keep in mind, 1970 Vietnam, it was a time when prisoner war news was ever present. And the enabling legislation you see doesn't focus on Andersonville. It provides a much wider perspective of the prisoner of war experience. So prisoner of war experiences, whether it's in 1973, 1953, or 1943, share some common universal themes. So in 1998, the National Prisoner of War Museum was established at Ander Andersonville, and it is a museum that focuses on the prisoner of war experience across time. It goes far beyond just Andersonville and includes original artifacts and stories uh, from, well, I don't know how far back it goes, but it goes to the modern era. So right now we're at the tail end of the sesquicentennial? sesquicentennial of the Civil War. And one of the reasons why Eric can't be here today is that tomorrow they're going to be having a special event at Andersonville. So uh, the park committed to uh, two years of programming to talk about the Civil War prisoner of war experience. And the, the point that they want to make is that the experiences cannot be compared. Uh, bucking the common trend to compare experiences, the park committed to an approach where universal concepts were used. Northern and southern prison systems were dramatically different in operation, yet the themes of the POW experience still are the common link. And you can see the, um, 
the numbers alone, at, at, in particular at Auschwitz, is, um, well, it speaks for itself. One of the things the park did is every day, um, starting when the prison was established to the day uh, the prison was closed, is they kept a tally on a whiteboard every day to mark the ebb and flow of who arrived and was processed, who died, and how many burials. And you can see that uh, unlike popular perceptions that most people died in just one month, in fact, it was a consistent, uh, not a consistent, people were dying every day, not just in August of 1865. So the final events of the uh, 150th anniversary will be celebrated starting tomorrow, September 18th through the 20th, and this will include a memorial luminary at the uh, prison site, but the keystone event will be a funeral for 13,000. Uh, in which um, the men who died will be remembered in a modern-day military honors service. And the focus of Andersonville is not just talking about an experience in one-time period, but in all-time periods, and it's not just an experience of suffering, it's an experience of many things. and that is Andersonville. Eric would have done a much better job. <laughs> now, Eric just moved uh, to the hallowed halls of superintendency. He became the superintendent at Minuteman Missile National Historic Site just a few months ago. Um, so we're all very proud of him, and now we have a free place to stay when we go to South Dakota. Um, <laughs> So uh, this is a very unique site. It's the only National Park Service site to date. Excuse me, the second, because Manhattan Project National Historical Site was just, National Historical Park was just established, um, that talks about the Cold War. So in partnership with the US Air Force, the National Park Service worked through the 1990s to preserve one Minuteman missile facility in South Dakota. It was authorized by Congress in 1999 Operations began in 2002, and just a few months ago, their brand new visitor center opened, and as we speak, their exhibits are being installed. The park preserves uh, two facilities, the missile silo with a Minuteman II missile ready to go. Well, not quite ready to go, but pretty close. <laughs> and um, the Delta I launch control facility uh, so where 30 years, U.S. Air Force personnel kept constant vigil over 10 nuclear weapons ready to launch at a moment's notice. The site is literally the Air Force walked away from it and handed the keys to the National Park Service. So the cruise court, someone told me that the cruise quarters even accession the trash in the trash can. Um, I, I, I'm going to take that as an apocryphal story. Uh, the park explores the technology, but more importantly, they explore the story of the people involved. And for 30 years, uh, men and women have uh, maintained these systems, and in many cases still lived in the area. Uh, it also talks about, yeah, Walt Drug not only has free ice water, they've got free donuts too. Um, they also tell the story of the people who were affected the ranchers, the larger communities, 
And per perhaps if Eric had his way, what it means not only for us in the United States, but around the world as well. Uh, the fabulous visitor center you see on the top was uh, just opened for construction and, excuse me, opened after construction. And again, the exhibits are being installed and he's included a sample of the exhibits. Uh, the exhibits will provide background to understand how the weapon system was used, what civil defense programs did, and um, much to uh, Brett's chagrin, uh, what uh, airbursts would be like over Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where he's living now. Thanks, Eric. Yeah. I'll use Eric's words here. Nuclear weapons have returned to the daily news this past year after having been largely absent from national discussions for 25 years. The park is positioned to take an active role in the dialogue about these weapons and their role in the 21st century. And with the recent establishment of Manhattan Project National Historical Park, he's, and, and that's years from being able to receive visitors, he's very excited about the partnership possibilities. So in a nutshell, those are three examples of how military history is more than just arrows on a map. It's a story about people, it's a story about institutions, and I'm a fervent believer it's a story about us. Love it or leave it, we are a nation born in violence. From the day that Jamestown started to the present day, our if you will, our national character and institutions were in their gestation period and even now were formed by the actions that we took by our branches of the military. And the one thing I have no tolerance for is that that doesn't make us warmongers. My brother would always tell me that all the time just to push my buttons. You warmonger. We are not. We're serious historians who, who, who feel for the human condition and by exploring military history in all of its different facets, it provides us uh, insight into not only the problems we're facing today, but I think it explores honestly and uh, the issues that shape our collective past. So I have no idea what time it is, but I am, oh, it's 2.28. So that means we have two minutes for questions? <laughs> Is it 2.30 that we go to? Oh, 2.45. Oh, okay. I can't tell time then. Uh, I'm calendar challenged and clock challenged. So questions, comments, concerns. Yes, sir. Yes. There are, at present count, nearly 400 units of the National Park Service. There is a unit in the National Park Service in every state in the Union, including most recently Delaware. We are a national organization, 
but each park, whether it's Mount Rainier National Park, Nez Perce, they have that context that they have to operate in. And because we're a very hierarchical organization, um, even though we have national standards, um, uh, often our planning and, if you will, our agendas are driven by our superintendent. We had a superintendent who worked at Big Hole and then came to Nez Perce and said, look, uh, she, she actually has a background in facilities management. She drove snow plows at Glacier National Park to open the going to the sun road. That's how she got her start. She's not a historian, but she's a storyteller. And she knew instinctively, and I don't think that, I don't, I'm, I, I don't like saying this, I don't think that she was aware of the broader political context that other sites had struggled. But in 1965, Nez Perce National Historical Park was created to tell the story of the Nez Perce. When you read the establishing legislation, we tell the story of loggers, of miners, of Lewis and Clark, of settlers. Oh yeah, and the last line is we tell the story of the Nez Perce. So she instinctively understood that for us to build bridges to our tribal community, we would have to surrender our authority to our tribal community. All of us, um, and I was just kind of a flunky, and I still think I am, but we all agreed that this was the right thing to do, and that's what we did. It was a very long process. From the first scoping meeting till the day that we cut the ribbon was four and a half years. And I think those of you who have planned exhibits operate on much tighter time scales than that. We had missteps. We had problems with fabrication. <laughs> the subcontractors just screwed up everything. But, but in terms of creating the content, everyone had to be on the same page before we were ready to go forward. And we would always say, is that what you want to talk about? Yep. Okay, that's what we're going to talk about. So when you get pushback, it's the sort of pushback that Brett and I were talking about. Oh, where's the guns? They're gone now. Yeah, they're gone now. And then there's the others in that, what that comment said, very small, who said, you're rewriting history. And I will argue that till my dying day, that that is what history is about. We never stand still. Under our, we're in the Park Service, we don't talk about, we use facts and figures to establish in the meaning, the, the audience minds, the meanings inherent in the resource. Meanings change generation by generation and person by person. And the only way for us to uh, be relevant and true to ourselves was to tell that story from that point of view. And there are some pretty ugly comments that say you're whitewashing the truth. Uh, and some people say the Indians got what they deserved. And I'm okay with that point of view because the visitor is sovereign. And we're not going to change their mind. And as long as they don't harm me or my staff, it's okay that they share that. But we don't carry a book. And yeah, it's censorship because the author, one said really mean, con con said some mean things about the staff, but also uh, says the, the Nez Perce were vigilantes. Yes, they were vigilantes, but you have to put it in context of 1877, not in 2000, whatever year we're in now, 2015. I'm sorry, I'm just blathering on. So the long and the short of it is that 
we made a choice in the way we were to tell the story, and we surrendered our authority, and it was the right thing to do. And I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of, of what we accomplished. Yes, sir. Yep, we do have a changing exhibit gallery on the second floor um, that I didn't talk about um, for the technology. It's been, we opened in 2008, so we are, we were in the process of updating some of the technology that we had. Uh, we had SD card readers for the mannequins that were on the train and the riverboat that have slowly started to fail, and we were re replacing them at, at will. Uh, that 360 movie has been open for about two years now, um, and thankfully it doesn't go down very much, uh, but we've got a, a maintenance agreement with BPI that if it does, they're on the phone. Um, I sort of threw it in at the very end there that, that the bad part about technology is that sometimes it does fail, and I remember being in there the very first time with 88th graders when I had to say, hey guys, this is gonna be awesome. You're gonna be the first group that ever gets to see a 270 degree movie. And that, it stinks, but it was up and running but by the afternoon. So, yeah. Yes? Um, in telling these personal stories, I, I like how you both were talking about turning it forward after whatever the event was, that moment in time, I can talk a little bit yeah. about what we do with the seeing the elephant. Um, we try and prepare our visitors as much as possible that what they're going to experience is going to be chaotic. And we do have a, you know, we have a greeter station as you walk into their main gallery. Um, and we tell very upfront, if you're a veteran, this might be a PTSD kind of thing. Um, where if you do go in, just be aware of what's going to happen. Um, one thing that I've found, um, anecdotally, accordingly, is that the veterans have always been able to sort of figure it out on their own if they want to watch it or if they don't. Um, the one time that I did see something that I was completely shocked by was a young girl who saw it, it was probably about eight years old, um, and, then, and as she and her father were leaving, I said something to her and to them about it, and he had said that uh, her older brother had just signed up to go to Afghanistan at that point, and that, she made that connection. And at that point, it was a little bit too late for me to do anything other than to say, oh my goodness, okay, thank you for telling me, now I at least know something, you know, another connection point there. So um, it, it, that's the scary thing about the 360 degree immersive experience is that it does have some unintended uh, effects there. I can just shrug my shoulders because we never trained anybody for that. Um, what we find is that there's uh, visitors who just see the National Park Service Arrowhead and say, let's stop. They don't know what it is and they assume, um, and again, I'm uncomfortable saying this, but it's a triumphalist American story. It is not. 
uh, the film is very emotional uh, and the visitors often are upset. Now, I don't know, the, the staff, uh, I, I wasn't there on site all the time, I, but, but I supported them any way I could. And I don't know if they ever had anybody, excuse the term, go off the rails because of seeing the film or experiencing the exhibit. Uh, they were, however, to their credit, very empathetic, and they would stay with the visitor as long as they needed to, to comfort them or to talk them through, or more importantly, to answer any questions that they might have. Because we have a, 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 an event that took place from June of 1877 till September of 1877, but it goes on till today. So the staff was always available to answer questions. For Nez Perce, uh, if you don't work for tribal part with, with tribal folks, there's this unfortunate stereotype is uh, pan-Indianism. If you talk with one Indian, you hear the voices of everybody. If you bring 12 Nez Perce in the room, you've got 12 different opinions about everything. So you have Nez Perce who are very traditional in their beliefs, and they will not go down to the battlefield because every time they do, they disturb the spirits of those who died. They self-select themselves out of the equation. Others who served in the military go down there to honor their ancestors. Um, others uh, will share their stories and they will share their stories. Uh, there are stories they will not tell you unless you earn their trust, and that takes a long time. And as custodians of this place, and of Bear Paw also, there's some things about the battlefield we know which we will not share with the public. Uh, but, but no, we, are, we were not trained to, to deal with trauma and stress, but we wanted to be honest about it, telling these stories. Yes, I was just going to quickly ask, do you find the Nesper's community or family members coming more to the visitor center or coming more to your group? Or is it, you know, what, how, how do relationships continue now? Oh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the three groups of Nesper's uh, have very contentious relationships that are very, uh, um, it's depressing to see that they're, fighting amongst themselves. But the, the, the story of trauma is something that unites them because it's a common experience. But we talked about that and we think that many Nez Perce will just go down to the battlefield themselves. And strike that, visitors, and including Nez Perce, will go down to the battlefield to experience themselves. I've been there when there's no one there. Absolutely not a soul. And it's a very different feeling when you're with a ranger. And we told the rangers, when you're going through the, the village site, you don't need to explain anything. Let the visitors just experience it in their own hearts and their own minds. Uh, but we don't have an accurate way of capturing the number of people who go down this hill, so. Yeah. so yes, sir. Um, to clarify one of your remarks earlier, when you were doing the exhibit, you 
Did you say you did or did not talk to the descendants of the U.S. Cavalry who were present at the engagement? We did not. We used. We, we, we used to, the, the best quotes were from the soldiers who recorded their thoughts. And so what they did is they hired actors to read those quotes. But one of the failures of our process is that there is a group, a friends group, uh, for Big Hole and Bear Paw Battlefield. And this was, in hindsight, we were so focused on making this a genuine Nez Perce story, we perhaps unconsciously didn't include that group in our scoping meeting. However, what the Nez Perce, when you talk to the spiritual leaders and the people who we talked to, they made it abundantly clear that in, tw in the 21st century, we are using our stories and our thoughts to honor all who died here. So in the way that they tell the story, it's not black hat and white hat. It's a story. Soldiers felt this and did this. And they try also for the soldiers. They're soldiers who say everything from I'm fearful of my life, I'm going to die, and I see myself dying, to... Uh, the only good Indian is a dead Indian, and I'm sad that I missed my chance to get some. So the part, and then the, and the, amongst the Nez Perce stories, you also see a wide range of opinions. And so the park staff, I think, has done a pretty good job of letting those historic characters speak for themselves rather than the staff casting judgment on what's good or what's bad. Um, if we had included some uh, soldier descendants, I often think about how would our conversations have gone. Uh, the stories that were shared with us in our scoping meetings were so raw with emotion that um, I don't know if any of the descendants of the soldiers could have um, answered to that with their stories of their own descendants. But because the, 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 the Nez Perce honor all who fought there, it's really hard to prognosticate. It was a mistake on, on behalf of the planning team not to include those voices. And if we could do it over again, uh, we would include them. Okay, gang, I think we have about two more minutes. So uh, to, oh, go ahead. Next year, um, oh, I put it away. Uh, next year, the publisher Roman and Littlefield, they're here. They're producing, uh, this is a shameless plug, I'm sorry. Uh, they're, um, they're producing a series of books called Interpret This, and I agreed to write uh, a, a, a volume of that series, Interpreting American Military History for Small Sites and Museums. Um, it's, it's an albatross, basically, but um, it, it's going to be uh, hopefully published in 2016. So next year when you come to wherever it's going to be held, this is going to be held next year. Um, Detroit. You'll uh, be able to purchase it and learn more about how to do this responsibly. Thank you guys very much for coming. This is yours. Isn't it? I'm sorry. I should have Thanks for the evaluation form. I think. Thanks for two.
I don't have any cards to give to people. Uh, all my cards say Bruce Ward. But if you're looking for more case studies for your upcoming book, you might want to think about the Constitution Museum and our own Constitution Museum. Yes, okay. Um, I, I um, unfortunately, we were, yes. I was supposed to put in case studies because of the state. Okay. I'm curious. My brother was my boss. So I went there yeah. and I was very possible. Yeah, I just want to mention it because if you need anyone to be contacted, I can contact you. Yeah, the one panel, the one panel, the one panel, because for us, we're, we aren't associated with the battlefield or anything like that. So, by proximity, people come up and see it in their, in their, it's not what they expect, but they like that personal attention to detail. Uh, that's what they do like. Um, we don't talk about crazy all the time. Yeah. So, so they, they're seeing themselves. It's, it's a great thing that, that we're doing. Um, the only folks that have a very small um, critique of us is um, folks that are coming from the south. And they come up because we focus on the upper Midwest viewpoints. They come up and say, hey, we get a lot of, well, that's what y'all think. And it's like, well, yeah, that's what they thought. That's what we're, we're not telling your story here. This is not the story of the southerners in this particular. So, um, but they, get, they like the interpretation. They, 